This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic, and uh, we are not here with Matt this week as of yet. He is uh, in the air right now. He is up in the air traveling, but he may join halfway through when we uh, are in the middle of our conversation with none other than Raw Egg Nationalist who uh, is a returning guest who really needs no introduction, but I will nevertheless go ahead and introduce him. Raw Egg Nationalist is a, uh, a fixture on our scene. He is the author of uh, Raw Egg Nationalism. More recently, The Eggs Benedict Option. He's the editor and publisher of Man's World. And uh, most recently, he was featured in Tucker Carlson original documentary, The End of Men, and uh, heralded as the the premier, I think, bro scientist of our, our time, which, uh, you know, frankly, is uh, true. So, um, yeah, no, thank you for coming on. Uh, it's uh, it's great. To it's a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure and a privilege, my friend. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. So perhaps, you know, we just jump into what jumped out at me when um reading the title eggs uh uh the eggs benedict option is obviously it's a play on words a play on the benedict option by rod dreher and uh so so rod dreher in the benedict option essentially suggests that um the culture war for the moment is lost and that the, the best thing that we can do is to remove ourselves and um, you know have a kind of parallel society, and this has received a lot of criticism. I think rightly so because it's just uh, it's very difficult to do that politically. <laughs> and uh, you know they're essentially they're not going to leave you alone, and the, it's a you know there, there's arguments on either side, but I think. Um, it's you know going to be very difficult to politically divest oneself from our current society in any meaningful way. But the eggs Benedict option of divesting your body from what you term soy globalism, that I think is something that is you know perhaps very doable and many of us are in some respects doing it right now. So uh, what what do you think about that is uh, is, the eggs Benedict option, a, a viable future for us who uh, want to preserve the purity of our bodies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, I chose the title mainly because I wanted to annoy Rod Dreher because he had he had taken a, <laughs> he had taken us he'd taken a swipe at me 
when all the when all the Jack Murphy stuff came out, he took a swipe at me uh, by trying to sort of link me to it, basically because I'd been on Jack Murphy's podcast before that happened. And oh sure, and yeah. so he he wrote an article about Jack Murphy called um, "Queer as Volk," you know, about about kind of uh, you know homoeroticism and fascism, and uh, he just so happened to use an image from my appearance on Jack Murphy's podcast. Um, a, a, a crap quality image as well you know you could get a good quality image of jack murphy if you wanted but he decided for some unknown reason to um use a bad quality uh still from the youtube video when i was on jack murphy's podcast so i sort of uh you know i i, I wanted to uh i wanted to um poke him back a little bit and uh anyway i came up with this idea fair enough the yeah. ex benedict option initially it was going to be an essay but then I thought, actually, you know what? That title is too good to be wasted on a 1500 word essay. You know, like that has to be a book. And I was thinking of writing a book, but I didn't actually have an argument. I only had a, I only had the title, the eggs Benedict option. Anyway, actually thinking then about the Benedict option and about what Rod Dreher is arguing, I, I started to think, well, what would a, what would an RWB be? What would a, you know, right wing bodybuilder, version of the benedict option look like and what would it be in response to well the great reset of course and this you know this plan for us all to have no property no privacy yeah and be happy uh and eat plant-based food living in the park yeah, eat, eat plant-based food and bugs and all that kind of stuff um but yes i was i was cognizant of course of the of the very obvious criticisms that you could make of rod dreher's work i think it's wishful thinking in the extreme and i think you only have to look at some a group like the amish for instance you know the amish are often held up as a group of people who are living a trad lifestyle that is a total rejection of the modern world and you know maybe we should be more like the amish but the truth is that the amish are living on a reservation or a series of reservations, right? And absolutely. And as we saw recently, uh, there was a farmer, wasn't there, who was I can't remember exactly what he was doing. There was an Amish farmer anyway who fell foul of the FDA, possibly for selling raw milk or some something like that. Anyway, uh, and they just absolutely invaded his farm, shut everything down. It, it made it to Tucker. It was on Tucker. I can remember. This wasn't that long ago, maybe a month or two ago. And uh, that's that's the reality of of spiritually divesting yourself from the current political regime, or, uh, from you know from the nation, but still yeah. within its territory. That's the problem: is that the the government still monopolizes authority. The government still has a monopoly on violence, and you're Absolutely. you're still subject to the to the writ of their law. Um, uh, how, however however much you might like to think that you're just sort of keeping to yourself and not bothering anybody. If they decide that actually you are bothering them, there's nothing you can do about it. So absolutely. And that's no different. That's no different with this idea of the Benedict option. I mean, I think that it's historically, I think that it's a misleading. It's misleading to compare conditions at the end of the roman empire with conditions today i mean for one thing we haven't witnessed a collapse that's one thing Correct. right like yeah. it's not chris they're still very much in power yeah exactly and and will be even for the foreseeable yeah. future so it's not so. so it's not it's not like retreating to fringe places 
after a political collapse because then actually you know you have a chance yeah it's in it's not defensible yeah. those areas yeah. so you can actually just do what you want yeah i mean it's akin to in some ways what jumps to my mind is the the tribal areas mm. in afghanistan sure. like you know you like good luck you, you want we we tried <laughs> you you can't you can't impose your your will on mm. them because it's just ungovernable that that area and you also and like but we we don't have that yeah. in america and, and, at least not and yet And you also have things like for instance you know the monasteries in ireland the monasteries in Ireland were custodians of civilization, of the written word, of what constituted, let's say, like high technology in the Dark Ages. Um, and so they had a very, very, they had a mutualist sort of relationship with the people around them. You know, the people around them, the ordinary people wanted the monasteries to be there because, among other things, and they had knowledge of um, medical practices and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's not... I don't think it's a particularly good analogy, um, uh, but absolutely, but but not to, not to labour that point. But um, yeah, the eggs. I mean, the thing about the eggs Benedict option is, firstly, that it is a it is a political solution as well. So I'm not I'm not just saying that people should sort of retreat into retreat into their bodies and just focus solely on you know ensuring that they have access to good food and do exercise and all that kind of stuff that's definitely that's definitely not what i'm that's definitely not what i'm saying and i do think that yeah. i do think that what what a movement for well what i'm advocating in the book basically is i'm advocating for a return to local food production uh and consumption basically the opposite of what the globalists want with the great reset which is a which is a global system of a global corporate system of food production which is totally out of the hands of ordinary people well i'm arguing for the opposite that we need to return to local systems of food production which ordinary people are invested in and which allow them to um produce and consume the kinds of foods that they actually want and need rather than having, you know, these sort of perverted, perverted corporate products foisted on them from on high. Absolutely. Uh, Which is a return to sovereignty, yes. to local, like that, that is political power to grow your own food yes. because then you're not reliant upon the you know the the food they serve you but the uh which is not good stuff exactly generally <laughs> Exa exactly no it's, it's very bad stuff indeed but what but what that requires i think is very definitely a political movement a kind of populism of some sort because you have to take on the corporations firstly because in america particularly but but in the rest of the world but i think as, as but especially so in america then the system works in favor of the big corporate producers of food and absolutely there are all sorts of ridiculous regulations that make it very very hard to be a small farmer and there's a great there's a very famous essay by joel salatin which became a collection of essays called everything i want to do is illegal <laughs> and that but but that's basically it. like he's a small farmer and he wants to do all of these things he wants to sell raw milk he wants to slaughter his own chickens he wants to he wants to use his land in a particular way he wants to have a sawmill you can't do it like there are there are all of these insane federal and 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 local bylaws that prevent yeah. that prevent farmers from doing things that are just sort of just common sense and actually you would need a political movement to to break the back of the corporations and to to create a system that is much more favorable to small scale production to for to small yeah. scale 
um, networks, food networks. Um, but you know, I look, I look to places like Russia, which is probably a, a probably a, an unpopular place to look at the moment. But they're well, not on our side. No, no, and <laughs> and um, but the sort of politics of it aside, then yeah, no, I know what you mean. The, the way that the way that Russians produce food is very very interesting because what you've got is you've got a mixture of local small-scale organic production by ordinary people in russia with an industrial system as well whereas in america really all you've got is the industrial system now uh yeah. but in russia then a significant proportion of the food that ordinary russians eat is produced by themselves on small plots of land in the countryside so they either live in the country or they live in the city and have a plot outside the the city that they travel to regularly and you know something like 90% of all potatoes um produced by value in russia are produced by ordinary people 87% of the fruit and berries 50% of the milk 50% of the milk. that's amazing yeah it's great it's crazy like, well, in the united states that must be you know minuscule like yeah. probably like 0.5% of the potatoes are produced by small growers yeah and i i don't know i'm pulling these figures sure. out but, of the but air, it's like but it's likely to be I, something like that sure it's like that mm. Yeah, and so I'm yeah I'm I'm drawing inspiration from that, and I, and and the basic message, the basic takeaway from looking at that system is, you can have a modern industrial nation. I know that I know that Russia has demographic problems and economic problems and all that kind of stuff, but Russia is nevertheless an urban industrial nation, 150, yeah. 150 million people, uh, and. A significant proportion one of the most populous on yeah, earth uh, and certainly the largest but you know it, uh, an industrial nation a modern industrial nation can produce a significant amount of its amount of it can meet a significant amount of its food needs locally and organically so that's that's really what i what i draw from it but um yes i think that i think that any to go back to the to the question yes i think that I don't think that we can, there's nowhere to run and hide. That's what I'd say. There's nowhere to run and hide. <laughs> we have to stand and fight. And uh, so, yeah, so the the Benedict option, I think, is definitely out. I think we I think we do need the eggs Benedict option instead. Absolutely. And to be eggs Benedict option, the Russian, I, I think the term for it in the book was Russian household farming. Household gardening. Russian household gardening. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And... So I'm curious, how much land do you think one would need to be, you know, moderately self-sufficient in that regard in, in this kind of conception of kind of being in an industrialized nation, but able to produce some of your own vegetables, some of your own meat, if you perhaps have a chicken coop, you, you know, perhaps have uh, some, you know, small livestock, like I, I would think you need a you know a, a small plot of land and i mean obviously in the cities that would be tough but america does have um I mean, a lot of untapped countryside still which you know is uh you know famously you know like they talk about oh this is flyover country well like in flyover country how many you know uh you know household farms could there be you know if, if allowed yeah. legally well, well you see the thing is um here's an interesting here's an interesting fact so the amount the total amount of land under cultivation in russia for household gardening 
is less than the total area of lawns in the US. <laughs> right. So so wow. there's already more or less enough land in private hands in the US to do you know do in, the, in the in the hands of private citizens to do um you know to do this kind of thing. It might not be equitably distributed, but nevertheless, I mean that's an indication that you know that that the means are there already. Having said that, yeah, you know, uh, in America, then you do have a history of government land grants that go right back, right back to the foundation, and indeed, and indeed beyond. But certainly in the nineteenth century, then you have the Homestead Acts that give people, yes, you know, fifty fifty acres for a homestead on the frontier, that kind of stuff. You wouldn't need that much land at all. And my argument actually isn't that everybody should become a homesteader. So that's not that's not what I'm saying in the. That's not what I'm saying in the book. So I'm I'm not making an argument for homesteading, although, you know, homestead if you want, because that isn't I mean, that isn't what they do in Russia, for instance. So what we're talking about yeah. is we're talking about ordinary people who spend a certain amount of time each week on a a little, usually quite small plot of land. I think the average size is less than an acre okay. out in the countryside. Um so they either live in the countryside and it's their garden, and then they might also have a separate plot nearby. Or if they live in the city, then it's just outside the city and they travel there nights during the week or at the weekend. But, I mean, what they what they do is they spend an average of 17 hours a week there during the, during the growing season as well. And you have to remember that the growing season in Russia is only four months, which is mu- oh, much course, shorter yeah. than the growing season in the U.S., so that's another reason why this could definitely work in the US because actually you get a lot more sunlight and you have a lot better climactic conditions than Russia, apart from maybe somewhere like one hundred percent, somewhere yeah, like Alaska like the... or you know some of the kind of high mountain high mountain areas of the states. But yeah, you don't need a huge amount of you don't need a huge amount of land. This is an incredibly because this is an intensive form of agriculture on a small scale. You don't need a great amount of land and it's quite amazing just how much produce these ordinary russian people are able to produce um with the sweat of their brow and without machinery or anything like that you know they use all sorts of um tried and tested ancient techniques for cultivation that we've sort of forgotten about but that you know very easy to would be very easy to replicate so it's uh yeah, it's not. It's not that um, the government would have to put aside huge tracts of lands to give three hundred million people a homestead or anything like that. That's not. That's not my argument. Uh, my argument yeah. is. My argument is just that people could, with a little bit of land each, or even if you put aside communal areas outside cities like allotments, um, you could you could allow. And if you allowed people to produce um, fruit and veg and keep animals in their gardens because there are a lot of um local bylaws in the u.s that prevent oh i'm sure not not in every state but some states and counties then there are bylaws where you know you you can't have a vegetable bed in your garden which is insane but um anyway (laughs) you know it it wouldn't take much for ordinary people to have a much greater hand in in producing the food that they eat and that would be a good thing and then, of course, the other part of the argument is that what we need is we need reform of the industrial system as well. Uh, and so I talk about regenerative farming, about um, 
people like Joel Salatin, people who do farming on a much larger scale, but still a smaller scale than the than the huge industrial farms that uh, dominate the U.S. market. So, again, that's where the sort of political political aspect comes in, where you're talking about breaking the back of of corporations and encouraging small farmers to um, to 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 take yeah. to take their place, basically. Yeah, no, I, I think in this instance, um, to draw it back to the raw nationalism of it all, um, eggs are, as you say, a superfood. And one of the reasons why um, is uh, that chickens are uh, very easy to cultivate, right? Relatively yeah. speaking, like you can have a, a uh, you know, small garden and have a chicken coop. You, you cannot have a small garden and have like a herd of cattle. That's no. not going to really work. But like, yeah, you could have a, a couple of chickens mm. and, you know, they you know produce eggs, produce meat. They're relatively easy to tend. Mm. And this is me kind of like speaking off the cuff. I'm not an expert in this, but no, it's true. it, it it's does true. seem to, to be that way. And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. No, it's true. No, it's true. Uh, chickens are chickens are great and and you can keep i mean there's that very very funny um 4chan green text about the the indoor chicken farmer i don't know if you've ever seen it where there's this man i think he's in eastern europe and he's he's keeping chickens in his flat in the city and he's got this like coop coop with blankets over it and it's so funny um but but yeah you don't not the cleanest animals no no i no i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend doing that but you you can yes on on a small plot of land you can definitely keep a few chickens and if you have something like an acre or even slightly less than an acre then you could definitely have a milk cow um goats and you could certainly have you could certainly have a pig or two as well because the thing is you know you can feed you can feed pigs food waste among other things um yeah uh, chickens likewise will it chickens are omnivores chickens will eat meat and that's yeah. one of the reasons that's one of the things that the amish to go back to the amish uh that's one of the things that the amish do they feed their chickens uh meat scraps from their farms and that's why their chickens and their eggs are so good because chicken yeah. chickens are omnivores and if you've actually you maybe you've you've seen it maybe you haven't a chicken will eat a mouse if a chicken sees a mouse a chicken will eat a mouse and there's a there was a video that oh, I believe it. Yeah, there was a video on on Twitter of a of a chicken stealing a mouse from a cat on a farm. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, it's definitely you can definitely no, do a lot with the you can do a lot with a small amount of land, and that does include keeping livestock. But yes, you do have to cut your cloth according to your means. You're not going to have a dairy herd on a on a quarter acre. Yeah. And but but you can control then what they eat, of course. Exactly. And so you can feed them like one of the, the biggest problems with factory farming beyond the cruelty, beyond, you know, the, the obvious um, ethical concerns, I would say, are um, the, um, you know, the, the health of the animals and thus the health of us. Yeah. You know, you're, you're eating sickly animals who have been fed the, the worst type of stuff. And if you own your your own animals, you can, you know, feed them. I mean, it it doesn't take a lot, right? Like, you know, it's you just don't feed them kind of like, you know, the whatever meal or, you know, churned up (laughs) feed they they feed on these factory farms. Yeah. And you you have a healthier animal and thus a healthier you. Yeah. I mean, I say I've said this uh, more than once. You are what what you eat eats. So. (laughs) <laughs> you know if 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 you're eating 
if you're eating animals that have been fed substandard fodder, then the nutrition is going to be is going to be less than than you'd get from from an animal that have been fed what it should be eating. And there there are all sorts of all sorts of ways that you can I mean if you wanted you could you could go into insect farming and you could actually you could actually produce um things like mealworms uh quite easily you know so that you can supplement your chicken's diet i mean chickens really should be scratching around in the dirt looking for insects um true yeah and I mean, that's what they yeah eat. and and uh you know small creatures um but yes you can supplement their diet by breeding by breeding mealworms and and other insects if you want I mean that's really you know chicken chicken should be eating insects we we on the other hand should not we should not if you know hopefully not mm. uh I mean although it is funny right about like for instance I was having shrimp last night and it's like well you know some of the sea creatures we eat are uh you know akin to insects I suppose sure but uh sure. regardless <laughs> um I guess moving on to uh, something else we, we talked about before the episode, and I'll jump into it now, the, the magazine revolution of which I think Man's World is uh, at the forefront, uh, at, you know, the leader, frankly, you. like you, you, yeah, you, you have been putting out this magazine for a while now. And the annual that you put out last year is, you know, striking. It's like, it's great. I have it on my coffee table. My dad was browsing through it. And he's just like, my, my dad is, you know, he's, uh, I'm 36, so he's in his 70s. He's not like a, a very online, <laughs> but he's just looking through it and he's just like, oh, this is really cool. And it's been a while since men have picked up magazines and been like, oh, this is something that's for me. Like, as opposed to like, you pick up Esquire and it's like, uh, you know, how to talk to your trans son <laughs> or something. <laughs> and he's like, well, this, this is not for me. Uh, but no, Man's World has like, I mean, fiction, of course, you know, but beyond that, health science, beyond that, political analysis, and it's but it's glossy, at least the annual, it looks, you know, it has all of this great artwork, these ads, some of them are uh, spoof ads, which are funny there. It, it's great. It's just like everyone should buy it. And so man's world obviously you're producing that uh to give a shout out to uh, i am magazine from i am 1776 those guys put out a, a great product cars and women our friend stained haynes he puts that out some great writing in there so we have a, a bit of a revolution going on in terms of physical magazines coming out and crucially you are now producing the digest which will be i think available certainly more frequently than annually and um yeah so we, we have these physical products that are available to you know have in our homes and my contention there thinking about it like not only is it great to have but also it um you know it helps to as always it helps to legitimize whatever you are when you exist in the real world so when someone has like like i just said like on my coffee table my dad picks it up it's like, well, this isn't something that you just do on the internet. This is like, it's a, you know, a book on your desk, on your coffee table. And uh, I, it's akin to like last week, I read an excerpt from my novel Nutcranker at uh, a reading that was in New York City. 
and you know people are there listening and you know um other people are reading it was sponsored by terror house press my publisher and uh they you know they're all you know listening to these you know stories by myself and other people and uh they're in the real world meeting each other and i think this is um the next step forward is um going into uh into meat space as they say with uh publications and and in life meetings and uh and indeed uh, i mean we'll talk about this more but certainly with uh documentaries like the end of men on tucker carlson originals of which you are uh featured and heralded as uh one of the thought leaders of our culture yeah it's uh no i i I totally agree i do think that i do think that it's important to break out of as 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 much fun as it is on Twitter, and I I do like it on Twitter, and I've you know I I owe oh, yeah. my I owe my, I I owe my success to in in very large measure to Twitter and to the people that I've met on Twitter. But um, oh me too. Yeah. But I think that yes, I think that having these physical artifacts, these products, is is a very very important and very very positive uh, step in in the right direction. I mean, one of the ways that I like to think about the about the annual is as a kind of kind of message from the future it's like this is a this is what this is what things could this is how things could be this is what things could look like if we were in control of the culture like you know we could we could have books like this magazines like this that actually say the things that we want that we want to be said that speak to us directly. This is, this is what culture could look like if we were in control. So it's like, so it's like, it's like a promise. It's like, this is what we could attain because, you know, I can't at the moment, at the moment, I logistically, I don't, I still haven't quite cracked the problem of how I would distribute the magazine regularly. You know, it's a big thing for one person too. I don't have anyone else helping me at the moment so it's a big thing and and there are all sorts of logistical problems and maybe some legal problems too so (laughs) so the the annual is my way of of sort of uh as well of course i'm just producing a nice product that people want to read but i do think that there's also something deeper there's something more meaningful symbolic about the the production of this thing it's like look this is if we all got our act together if we all pulled together and supported one another and and really sort of um pushed in the same direction then uh you know this could be instead of being a one-off then this could just be you know the culture could the culture could be like this rather than you know just a rare artifact once a year it could be you know this could be us in control of the culture and yeah it's it's very very heartening that other people are also producing stuff um yeah, it's all it's all to the good. It's all to the good. Even if we disagree on certain things, I think it's all to, it's all to the good, really. That we're all that we're starting to see this real outpouring of of creativity in the real world. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, with regard to uh, the digest specifically, is uh, is the plan there to have a physical? Because I I have the the last digest. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It is the plan for that to come out um, somewhat regularly. Uh, every, every issue, so there'll be a after after oh, issue after yeah. issue nine comes out, then there'll be a digest, 
and it'll have yeah eight, eight to ten a selection of eight to ten pieces from the from issue nine in black and white um in that sort of digest slightly retro form within within the yeah. within the constraints of the amazon print on demand system so there are things you can't do on that that you could do with a you know with another printing service like you can't have images running across pages within the magazine and or within the, the publication and there are you know um other other things like that you can't adjust the margins you can't go up to the margins or anything like that uh, or beyond the margins rather um so i mean i'm working within the limitations of the form but but again it's it's not expensive you know it's ten ten dollars for the digest and it's just it's a physical product you can have that you can show to people and also it's and also it's a way of supporting what i'm doing as well absolutely and i mean it's just like it's so great to have it in your hands to have something that you can actually like like last night i was uh reading it and you know getting ready for our episode reading your your yeah. essay which we'll get to and it's great to have something that like i'm not really a screen guy i like you know i'm on the screen enough at work yeah. and so when i'm like you know, um, want, want to read something for pleasure. It's like, it's so great to actually have something in your hands. Oh yeah, for and sure. So... Yeah, it's, it's the ideal. Listen, I'm, I mean, if I could have, if I could have published the magazine in hard copy form from the start, I would have, yeah. but the thing, I mean, the thing is when I started, then I just thought, oh, this is just going to be like a glorious one-off. This will be funny. And people will think, oh, this is great. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have our own magazine? that wasn't po that yeah. wasn't paused and didn't yeah. didn't you know i mean it's it's funny that um i mean the, the culture has changed so much yeah. because i remember i grew up in the like i'm 36 i grew up in the 90s matt is joining us now Fantastic. so very cool to have matt uh on board hello hey. matt hey how's it going can you guys hear me okay we can hear you it's good to have you here yeah, we hear I'm, you uh, reporting live from the harry reed international airport in las vegas <laughs> uh, a bit of a layover here uh but uh, great back. call i i won't uh, thank you i i'm not sure if this will be my most based podcast ever since i'm <laughs> basically in public but uh <laughs> nevertheless i'm glad to be able to join um don't uh, don't, don't wanna... access to the airport. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So I don't want to uh, disrupt the conversation too much. So you guys get back into what what you were talking about, and I'll I'll hop in when I can. Cool. <laughs> okay. So uh, so we were talking about how in the '90s, men's magazines like Esquire or whatever, I I would read them as a teen, Me too. as a you know even preteen, and it was like it was actually stuff that was interesting. It like it was it it was a men's magazine. It was for mm -hmm. men. It did talk about stuff that, you know, was pertinent to our lives. And that's it. That's just gone now. Like the stuff that, you know, if you pick up Esquire today, it's like I was telling Ryag, you know, earlier, it's like, um, you know, how to uh, talk to your lesbian wife. <laughs> it's like, it's like yeah. not like, uh, or yeah, it's just, it's not really pertinent, hopefully not pertinent to, you know, most men's lives. <laughs> and um, so like, it's so great to have something like Man's World and these other magazines that are coming out. We, we've said them earlier. I'm, I am Magazine, Cars and Women. Uh, oh, Passage, of course, Passage. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great to actually have stuff that's, you know, again, for us. And, you know, frankly, it's kind of cool that it's underground. It's like yeah. you feel like you're a part of a secret club. 
and I guess kind of we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's it's cool. Yeah, it's definitely. I do. I do think that the. I do think that the, the edginess of it and the and the sort of um, in group aspect of it, I think, is something actually that you see prominent um, conservative commentators kind of aspiring to, and I think they're maybe maybe jealous is the wrong word, but they definitely they definitely kind of um, I think they definitely kind of uh, would like to be on board, but uh, but of course, yes, I mean some of that as this maybe goes a bit more mainstream if it, if indeed it does will you know some of that mystique will be lost but i do but i do think nevertheless that simply that the mere fact that we are producing content like this ensures that it will that it will seem fresh and edgy and 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 very different from anything else on the market at the moment certainly very different from any of the any of the traditional the traditional men's magazines or what's left of them including obviously playboy which is which is one of my main inspirations you know the the classic play, oh classic yeah Playboys, classic playboys but even playboy up to about sort of 2010 2012 you know i've got some copies of playboy here from i think even as late as 2014 that, that weren't not bad at all you know and you still yeah. you still got good written content and and it's not it's not in any obvious sense paused but I mean, Playboy, Playboy now is Playboy now is just a laughing stock. I mean, yeah, you have no like I, I can't even imagine yeah. what like the centerfolds look like now. Well, they Are had they, well they like, had a know, they had a social a, justice centerfold. Well, they had a they had a they had a transgender model on the cover recently. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, they did. So so they've they've gone there. They've gone. Yeah, it's crazy. I can't imagine that. Yeah, it's crazy. It's. Uh... <laughs> Oh, not not for men. I mean, well, I guess for some. Men. I think they. But, I think uh, they had. Not... Didn't they have? I think they had Lizzo in it as well. I think Lizzo was like oh. a, did a. That sounds right. I think. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I think so. But don't, if if she hasn't, then she will. I'm sure she will, and that will just be the next, the next um, the next thing that will send uh, Hugh Hefner spinning even faster in his grave. My uh, my principal memory of uh, Playboy early, uh, you know, um, teenager, preteen, or like thirteen, and I, I found one, and it was I think it was the Spice Girls, mm-hmm. and it was I think Ginger Spice, Funny. and that was just like you know like wow, I was uh, yeah, it uh, you know it like I think it inducted a lot. Playboy inducted yeah. a lot of men into sure. masculinity and you know sexuality yeah and uh now i mean like if this is inducting men into sexuality it's uh doing uh, a very uh, deviant job of, yeah no, it's <laughs> of a, that. it's an interesting point i think it speaks both to oh i think i'm am i on mute no i'm not okay, good. No, I, um, we hear you. i'm intermittently going on mute when uh when children are passing by and, and things like that because <laughs> i've definitely never done a podcast like this but i just wanted to say uh, it's absolutely you know both what you're saying in terms of you know the finding your dad's playboys or whatever being a sort of rite of passage um both speaks to the power that it once had and also why it's so deviant now um you know if it's it's bringing a very different social message now but it's still you know it's probably not because i don't think younger teenage dudes are gonna be interested but nevertheless the intention would almost be to sort of hijack you know into yeah, into to, the young mind really. essentially yeah um but I, I did also want to kind of say it's amazing with with men's magazines and kind of the entertainment industry 
generally. I mean, these were a certain elements of them, you you know, maybe we'd always had criticisms of, uh, definitely in the case of the more, you know, the broader uh, Hollywood and entertainment industry. But it's, it's you know, these things used to have elements of vitality to them uh, that we can see as virtuous sort of in retrospect. But what they are now, it's almost like a, it's like a, imagine, in my head, I'm imagining like a metaphor of like an old mall or something where every store has been repurposed, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in that metaphor, but you, you know what I mean? It's like the simulacra of what once was. Um, it's like almost like, why, why, why do people even continue to make movies? Why do people even bother trying to make men's magazines uh, just for to basically to leech off of the power that was once in these cultural institutions, but, uh, but instead to bring the sort of, you know, GAE, whatever you want to call it, ideology yeah. now. Yeah. Trojan horse, really. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think, you know, that I think, I mean, it's strange. I don't know who reads Playboy anymore. I don't, I really don't, I really <laughs> don't know who the readership of Playboy is. But I think that, I think that taking over these cultural institutions, if you would call Playboy that, I suppose you could taking over and subverting these cultural institutions is actually important i think the actual the actual act of doing that is important being seen to be in control of these yeah absolutely what was what was formerly a a bastion of let's say masculine culture um for that to be so totally subverted is a is a symbolic victory for them it, it shows yeah it sh- it's a demonstration and so i think that's why that's why it matters so much you know that's why yeah, no. that's why there was always going to be a transgender model on the front of playboy that just had it, it, it's ha- it had to happen people salute his force. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly it's it is it is exactly that it is exactly that it's iconoclasm. It's you know tearing down monuments. It is. That's and a good replacing way it yeah. with yeah. their own, True. which you know obviously was something that happened in 2020, and continues to happen. I'm sure. Yeah. No. The the iconoclasm thing is always interesting because uh, you have like the very concrete example of tearing down statues, but then it's actually much more interesting to look at the more metaphorical or like less literal ways it happens with with institutions like men's magazines and yeah what have you and i noticed the, i don't know I, i'm sure we're going to be talking about the end of men documentary i don't that know was actually my next that. topic but yeah um well i mean i don't want to no no it's a great segue this way, but i noticed that it. even in that you know in this in the which is it's a great it's a great documentary let me say that first and foremost but in the sections where uh they're kind of talking about those decline of the west type topics you know they lean into that image of iconoclasm which isn't even you know directly related to the physical health topic that most of the documentaries uh you know about uh, but nevertheless, it's always, you know, that, that image is never far from the surface because it, it does all, it, it's, it, it takes us far in kind of realizing what is going on, which is this tearing down process. Yeah, the, the, the end of men is, um, I mean, the reaction to the end of men was, was hilarious, I thought. And, you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've written, I yeah. wrote about that for American Mind. I wrote about the reaction to the trailer about the fact that um you know the, oh, the various yeah. the various critics um in the mainstream media and on twitter you know could only say oh this is you know this is so gay this is so homoerotic tucker's a <laughs> tucker's a closet um closet homosexual tucker you know is uh, just airing his fantasies for us all to see and all that <laughs> kind of stuff trying trying to dismiss it on those terms and and of course that is that is a common slur that is used to to deter men from 
associating with one another from cultivating real friendship and pursuing higher goals and that's that's something that i you know that i talk about in the article because they are afraid of they are afraid of men who are who have broken broken together yeah broken broken free from the matrix who are aren't just passive consumers but are actually creators are producers of culture and values that's something that uh, absolutely terrifies them, and that's that's something that runs through all of the all of the responses to the Tucker documentary, and also I think more broadly to my work and people, mm-hmm. the work of people, you know, someone like Bronze Age Pervert and and, and other oh, work absolutely. on yeah. other work on uh, masculinity and and vitality and vitalism, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's definitely something that scares them, and, and for good reason because. Uh, because Absolutely. because it would totally overturn totally overturn the world as 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 they want it to be i actually have like a, a sort of political question about that in a second but i did yeah i i do think uh the, the, to speak on the reaction first i think that you know i was glad to see the reaction was interesting enough and and you know disgusting enough in certain ways from uh the the sort of mainstream media that uh tucker actually incorporated it into the documentary yeah. at the end which i thought was worthwhile because that's is as very much as interesting as a lot of the other stuff in the documentary was that reaction um so i, I was about to see that but i guess my question is uh is like i was thinking about this while watching it you have jfk is really the only um political figure cited in the documentary and a, a speech he gave about, um, you know, uh, get, getting America's youth in shape, essentially, which is indeed, you know, very inspiring, is the main sort of uh, political, is the main sort of like political content or, or the, the only time like a really political figure, unless you count Robert F. Kennedy as such, uh, is cited. And I, it got me thinking, you know, because obviously JFK was a Democrat, obviously that was a, a different party at the time. Uh, the, the point isn't really, you know, wh- whether JFK was on the right side of this side of the other thing, but it, it got me thinking that evidently here was a president who people don't necessarily, you know, it's not Theodore Roosevelt. People don't necessarily okay. see JFK as like one of our guys per se, but just it, as a general American president who cared about this country, um, he cared about the health of the youth. And, and that, you know, his, his motivations there, I'm sure, were very pure and, and had to do with, you know, strengthening the nation for you know, people's good for the, the good of the nation. So I wonder if you have thoughts that I'm sure you do on what's changed that now, you know, our government doesn't, you know, obviously doesn't want that um, for, for reasons that are talked about in the documentary. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess just I'm talking in circles here, being in the airport a little bit, but just especially because, you know, JFK is not like this seen as his base figure he was just a, a normal american president sure. so it's it's not even like a right-wing versus left-wing thing it's like what has changed that a normal president would have vouched for these things and now now you know it's the president won't vouch for that or, or maybe even supports the opposite yeah it's interesting it's interesting isn't it i i don't i mean i don't know i don't know enough about american political history and the, the speeches and policies of of uh presidents to know exactly whether anybody else has talked about the subject in the way that kennedy did or even touched on the subject at all um i mean obviously various various presidents since kennedy have talked about 
you know, obesity and health problems and stuff like that. But I don't know that any president has ever couched it, certainly since Kennedy, in the way that Kennedy was couching it in that speech as being, you know, it's not just, oh, people people are too fat and it's costing it's costing the government money and it's, you know, costing employers money, healthcare insurance and all that kind of stuff. And it makes our, you know, it lowers our GDP or something like that, you know. The kind of uh, very very kind of base sort of economic economic um, interpretation of everything that seems to to win out now, mm-hmm. but actually you know he was he was saying he was making a much more a much deeper argument about the about the nation as an entity about the health of the nation as an entity about its purpose and strength and and its future and no yes, I don't yes. I don't know that anybody's spoken like that and I don't know. I mean, obviously, well, look at look at the reaction to the documentary. So, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 apparently, you know, I mean, it's it's basically fascism. That 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 that's the <laughs> that's the yeah that that has been the main response. Is that yeah? Uh, I mean, what what was it? The one phrase was Hi- hyper militant men. That's the that's what that's what Tucker's <laughs> that's what Tucker's promoting. Right, it's hyper militant men. So. I think there's definitely been a ch- there's definitely been a change in the in the sort of political climate where I mean look in the, that was the 60s right I mean the the second world war wasn't a long wasn't a long way away yeah. then and yet and yet uh you know Kennedy's flirting with fascism by talking about the health of the nation and you know sort of regimented physical discipline and and getting people to fall in line and do physical exercise regularly and all that kind of stuff um so yeah i mean i I don't know exactly what has changed but something definitely has changed in the political culture whether it's yeah whether it's also whether it's also got anything to do with the entrenchment or the further entrenchment of you know these big corporations that feed us muck and medicate us and yeah i don't know i mean quite possibly it is it is to do with quite possibly it is to do with that maybe it's that oh i i, I expect to a considerable degree yeah i mean i think there's i know i asked a question knowing damn well that i was asking a question with a very complicated answer but it is it is interesting to highlight i guess yeah just partially that again it's jfk it's not yeah. you know who, who you know pick your poison but yeah where you sit down sorry Oh, it's uh, it's striking that um, as, you know, recently, I mean, not very recent, but as recently as the 1960s, JFK, you he, you know, essentially in the documentary and in our political history was saying something to the effect of the health of our young men is uh, consonant with the health of the nation. And something like that was something that was being said by JFK who was one of the architects of the Civil Rights Act, frankly. Right, right. And uh, I mean, like, you couldn't find really a more uh, progressive guy. <laughs> I mean, maybe not in his personal life, but in his political life than JFK. And this was a, a, a guy who, um, you know, in, when it came to physical fitness, would say something like that. And it's such a kind of indictment of our culture that um, today... The idea of like the health of a nation is tied to the health of its young men and their vitality is seen as something pernicious or bad. Yeah, it's, and yeah, no, absolutely. That's you know that's really 
if that doesn't give people pause, like all, all of this, this outroar against the, the you know, the end of men, the, the video, uh, the, the, you know, the documentary, if uh, that is kind of like explained to them, well, okay, but it, it you're essentially disagreeing with JFK. Like this is, you know, theoretically they're, they're idle, you know, JFK is, you know, he's the mm-hmm. great, you know, hero of the progressive movement in, in some respects. Well, it's, and, it's, it's um, interesting, you know, that um, although there was a very, very vehement uh, reaction, a very, very violent reaction to the trailer, it's quite noticeable that actually since the documentary dropped and, and there was a sort of, um, how long was it? It was at least five months between the trailer and the documentary dropping there's actually been a very, very muted reaction uh, from the mainstream media to the documentary itself. So there was a, there was a, you know, there were dozens of hit pieces about the trailer. And then there's been very, very little reaction to the documentary from the left. Uh, I think, I think in part because the actual content of the, the actual content of the documentary is much deeper than they want to acknowledge yeah. and they and they don't want to engage with it and yes i think now that you've brought up the jfk thing i think it is partly that too it's like look you've got you've got a democrat politician you know the the bright young hope of the nation changing america uh and, and yet he's also saying he's also saying these things that you would like people to believe are fascistic yeah, and that exactly. I, I think they would. I think they would rather just prefer that the 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 documentary didn't happen. That's that's what I think they're actually doing. I think they're actually trying to starve it of oxygen, basically. You know, because there was a lot of publicity about the about the trailer. I mean, Stephen Colbert, Stephen Colbert was talking about it. Joy Behar, all of these people, the Young Turks, um, and then and now there's been there's been absolutely nothing like that for the for the actual documentary itself. Right. Because well, that, that's afraid. another point. Yeah. No, they're they're absolutely afraid, and it's it's a point I definitely wanted to make. I think I I think I said this last time you were on the podcast. Uh, you know, relating to your work, Ryan. But like, but specific, but but the documentaries. I mean, there's no better thing to show. You know, the un the uninitiated, the normie, than a documentary like this. Because again, it doesn't foreground political issues as such. All these things that are apparently very frightening to people. You know, with Trump and everything. Mm. But rather, it's about physical health and it makes arguments against uh things like monsanto and these other corporations yeah. that, that no one in their right mind really likes other than people who are lining their pocketbook you know on their on their dime um so it, i mean this is extremely it's not propaganda but if you know it's extremely effective at winning winning you know potentially curious minds over and i think that's one of the reasons why you're not going to see people engage with it because you know that trailer so i don't know if this was by design but obviously the trailer did a great job of of putting this on a lot of people's radar because i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna echo uh the the the, you know msm commentators but obviously homoerotic is not the word i would use but it's it's striking it's visually oh yeah you know it's it's a it's a vision of masculinity no doubt involving you know the sort of joke with the well not joke but you know, treated for a little bit of humor, I think, with the ball tanning thing. Yeah. You know, it, uh, it got, it, it did a good job of kind of getting eyeballs on it. But in the actual documentary, it's like you get the trailer, but then you get a lot of in-depth stuff from, from a variety of voices, not all of which are political or associated with any right-wing conspiracies or anything. Well, the, you know, the interesting thing is, so one of the ways that they tried to dismiss the, 
one of the ways they've tried to dismiss the documentary is by saying that Tucker is using pseudoscience, you know, that it's um that all he cares about is white is young white men rather than rather than uh you know any any other any yes. other male demographic <laughs> and there was a ridiculous there was a ridiculous i think it was a tweet or a might even have been a hit piece type article where they were saying oh there's uh, one person of color features in the end of men and they're in they're in the documentary for 0.26 seconds you know they've actually taken the stopwatch to to see just exactly how long this you know one person was in the documentary but just this week um, a new study has come out, uh, which uh, a big, big scientific study out of Israel has just come out, and it shows that all of the changes that are that we've witnessed in the in the Western world in terms of fertility and uh, testosterone levels, sperm counts are being mirrored outside the Western world in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. So, you know, this is this is a global problem, and that puts a very different slant on it um it puts a very different slant on the criticism as well because you know th these people are trying to say that it's uh, these these msm commentators are trying to say you know this is this is tucker's fever dream about the decline of white male potency in america that's what they're trying to say that it is and yet here we have here we have some very very compelling further evidence that actually mm -hmm. actually what's going on is is a uh, you know this is a global problem so I think that um, I think that I think no, I think no, that the cri the, cri the yeah. critics are in a, the critics are in a tight spot. They don't they just don't want to engage with it. They just don't want to engage with it, and so they're not. Yeah, no, you you bring up a good point with that. So I think it ties also into to part of what I was saying with you know this being a, a good this kind of content being good. You know, this kind of issue with health being a good one to focus on because it really does transcend a lot of the hot button things because it doesn't reduce to just some race thing or something no. as you said you know it it, it it really becomes a problem that everyone uh even you know <laughs> even some people who, who 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 are more aligned with these elements of you know the, the culture that we don't like nevertheless like you know you don't want to die young like it, it just it just so directly speaks to people you know where they are and in a, in a place that they you know may need to improve yeah yeah for sure yeah for sure i th I do think that i do think i mean I, I i come in for criticism and i came in for have come in for some criticism since i actually appeared because i was on on tucker carlson tonight or tonight with tucker carlson right. you know i was was interviewed yeah. on that for five minutes which was which was utterly surreal but um definitely no it's um just a little off topic at dan step away for a second so we can you know, get back uh, to his outline when he comes back. But no, I, I, it's, it's amazing that that Tucker did this. Obviously, and you yeah. mentioned earlier how you know you get with the with Man's World and all these things. It's, it's evident that people like him are, are again, not necessarily. You know, the, the best ones aren't necessarily jealous of it, but they're you know seeking ways to channel it, yeah. uh, more effectively. And he seems like definitely someone who's doing that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. He's definitely you know, he's it, definitely someone who I think is on board, and I think he. I think he's definitely he's trying to harness the energy, I think, in the right way, because you see, I mean, you see other people who are kind of parasitic on it and they don't they don't really do anything other than steal talking points and memes without giving without without giving any without giving any real credit. So. um so yeah, I mean Tucker Tucker is doing a Tucker is doing a is doing a great job because he's he's yeah, treading a, he's treading I, a very I, fine I really, line. 
he is, and he's doing a good job of it. I'm very excited to see, you know, him continue. He does, you know, these, uh, obviously he had you on his main program, but he also, I'm not even sure what this is called, but he does like some kind of video podcast thing where he had Yarvin and he had yeah. our friend Catherine Dion, who's like even, you know, she, she's got a good audience, but like she's, she's smaller than Yarvin and smaller than yourself. And I only say that to illustrate that he's really kind of digging in deeper yeah, for sure. uh, to this corner of things. And uh, as you said, you know, he's not someone taking the ideas you know two years after people originally made them he's actually engaging with you know a vital yeah. corner of the internet so i you know there's I, maybe we'll talk a little i know that you're not as averse to necessarily some of the american political landscape so i don't know how much we'll talk about that there's some sort of black not black pills too strong of a word but, you know there's some disappointment with the recent you know midterms yeah, or what sure. have you but but like there's still a lot of i think white pills in uh what what people like tucker are doing yeah, absolutely. But no, I, I was I was just saying that I did come in for a bit of criticism uh, after I appeared on Tucker Carlson because people were saying, people who who hadn't really taken notice of me before, people on the right were saying, "Oh, this is just a you know, this is just a distraction from this particular issue, which is the which is the big issue of our time, uh, you know, or this is the or this is the most pertinent issue for the for the right today, blah blah blah." Mm -hmm. And I mean, the thing that I First of all, it's it's not a it's definitely not a distraction, and these kind of people who just I don't know there's a certain kind of person who just wants everybody just to fed post the whole time, you know, and yeah, and absolutely, and it's, and it's I'm like okay, well how how far have you how far have you got constantly talking about that one issue that you're that you're afraid you know that you're that you're um, ashamed to say that I won't talk about you know it's like you're not. You've not got very far at all. In fact, what you've done is you've mm -hmm. you've ended up uh, maneuvering yourself into a position where actually you don't have any way out, and and nobody takes you nobody yeah. takes you particularly seriously. It's like you know this this the, the the health the health issue is definitely is a is a like with I mean with with Bronze Age mindset with Bronze Age pervert, then it, mm -hmm. it's it's something that has an intuitive appeal. You know that you really and yeah. you really can capture people's capture people's imagination and also appeal to appeal to their basic instincts and their 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 kind of basic desires and wants i think it goes back to uh what we said at the beginning the benedict option versus the eggs benedict option and you know there there is a certain class of us online who prefer a sort of based benedict option yeah, for sure. where you have your your own silo and you say things that you know everyone who is like in the normie world is going to be yeah, like uh what now this is not gonna work this is you're crazy and then they you know resent you for reaching out on programs like tucker but i mean i think the more forward thinking of us understand that um you you do need to be in the arena you do need to be uh, fighting for your beliefs and there's no better venue for do to do that than on tucker he's like if, if anyone in the media is our guy yeah that it's him yeah i mean how and, i mean how, how how anybody could turn my appearing on tucker into a into a, into a cause for anything other than uh happiness is is it's just beyond me i was i was quite taken back actually by the fact that that actually some people really did react very badly to it I mean, we have a lot of Spurks out there. So. Yeah, we do. We have people, and I don't even want to drag them because I no, think some of them, no. you know, have their own issues. But like, there's people who are just allergic to any kind of 
success yeah, for sure like that um you know maybe and maybe they've seen it happen before and they under they know that like sometimes the the message gets perverted or, or softened in some kind of way but that's again to reiterate that's not at all what's going on with you no but but also anything like that it's, but also yeah. in many respects then the message will have to be softened to be right to, it's it's that's not necessarily a bad thing at all uh, for the message I to agree. be softened yeah. uh it's softened not subverted yeah I mean, yeah a, that's a good a distinction yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's certainly too many people out there who are um, blackpilled and, you know, want everyone else to be. And I think that's kind of a good segue to your your essay in the most recent digest in Man, Man's World Digest, Tilting at Black Pills. And um, yeah, so you, you were responding to Alex Perez, in some respects, responding to Alex Perez's essay in I Am Magazine, where... Perez seemed to deride um, the writers on the, the the right, our kind of emerging class of uh, frog fiction writers, shall we say, uh, as being too uh, too black pilled. But he, you know, he wasn't really like that. Uh, he didn't explain exactly what he meant. And I, I think you you did raise a very good distinction, which is like, yes, of course you know, young men writing today will be writing about topics that are kind of nihilistic because that's the landscape that they live in. But um, that doesn't mean it has necessarily a nihilistic message. No. In fact, as you say with BAM, with uh, BAP book, like uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, frankly, quite the opposite. Yeah, it's, that's that's not a black pill text. I've, I found that bizarre that that was that that was highlighted as a as a black pill text i'm like what's what makes you wonder if you actually read it <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah true, sure. true. <laughs> but the thing is but the thing is as well i mean to to say that michelle welbeck is just a black pilled writer i mean he, his writing is uniformly dark i'm i'm not going to dispute that but when I, I i use the example of his novel platform his second novel you know as to say well actually yeah, maybe superficially, this is sort of like a black pill novel. And what you've got is, you know, you've got the end of history and this man who just meets a woman and, you know, they they descend into kind of sexual hedonism and then they end up in in Southeast Asia, in Thailand, you know, pursuing this this kind of meaningless hedonistic lifestyle. And, and maybe that's all we can hope for. And then all of a sudden, these jihadis pull up on the beach on jet skis and right. and kill everybody and like you know th that's the in a strange way that is a hopeful message right and that's what i say in the yes. piece is that that no, is like true. here is history you know we, we thought it was the end of history it's just liberalism and you know individualism no no meta-narrative just hedonism whatever you know do do what thou wilt and then suddenly you have the re-emergence of history. Suddenly you have the 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 emergence of a of a of a narrative, of a grand narrative, the re-emergence of possibilities. You know, you could yes, you could spend your life um, you know, having sex on the beach in Thailand, or you could end up being blown up by a jet ski riding jihadi out of nowhere. So yeah. it's like that that there's no way that that is a simple black pilled text. I mean some Absolutely, some other yeah. some other novels of Welbeck's are pretty 
pretty blackpilling in certain respects. Yeah, what what his first whatever, yeah. you know, perhaps is. But even even there, it's like, I mean, the mere fact that his novels are, are so funny and yes. moving, uh, you know, intermittently, you know, that's uh, even if the te- textually it's blackpilling, it's it's. Yeah. Uh, I'm. It, I don't know if you guys can hear this uh, airport announcement in the background here, but um. <laughs> Can you? I don't know. Well, we can, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll edit it. A little, little uh, production value. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, not to make too meta of a point, but, you know, the books are so good that the, their existence is not a black film. It's the opposite. It, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it shows that there's a, a triumph of uh, of art, uh, you know, that, that, that can, you know, be edifying to the soul, even even in the face of mm. very bad social reality. So if that's one level on which it's not black film. And then the other level is what you mentioned, which is that, you know, there, there's more to it highlighted i definitely i think welbeck's books are about a declining civilization no doubt yeah. i mean i i don't think you have to deny no. you know decline of civilization or not to be black bill but uh but you know his his work shows just as as you know bat book and your you know the work that you do as well shows different ways out of it i think that welbeck's in a slightly more understated and less obviously instructive way does as well and it's just you have to that's the stuff you have to read for I mean, one of the one of the things that I also found kind of interesting and uh, or baffling rather about that essay was the way that he the way that he sort of tried to dismiss the content of Bronze Age mindset and and just say that actually, yeah, actually what the book is about is about the style, you know, um, uh, first of all, as if as if you can separate style and content in a in an easy way. I mean, I, I don't think you ever re- yeah. you ever really can, and I don't really don't think you can with Bronze Age mindset. But it was just a funny thing to sort of try to almost try to reduce Bronze Age mindset to BAP speak, you know, to his his particular his particular lingo that sort of um, the slang that he's developed. Um, I just thought, God, I mean, what's that 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 people find that yeah people find that funny and you see a lot of people on twitter using bap speak um and you know it's definitely caught on it's definitely become a meme and it's funny especially when he does it because he he does it very well but yeah that isn't that is not the primary reason why people are reading bronze age mindset and no. if you <laughs> and if not. you actually rewrote bronze age mm-hmm. mindset in a more sober tone you know, if you if you kind of cut the bap speak, the ideas would still, although the ideas would would maybe have less immediate force, they'd have less. They wouldn't have the kind of comic punch and the that they do now. Nevertheless, the ideas would still, I think, have a very very powerful impact. And it is, and it is the ideas. It is the, it is the ideas about you know the bug man and the bug world and and the potential for the potential for a kind of. Um, reemergence of the sea peoples and all this kind of stuff you know the the potential to move out of out of totally owned space into some new onto some new horizon where actually you can fulfill your your inborn desire as a you know as a man maybe to to exercise and develop your powers you know like that's that's the message that's the message and that's what people but i mean i don't i don't i don't know that bronze age mindset is necessarily I mean, yeah, it could be literary inspiration for fiction writers, but I don't know why that was even really sort of chosen as the chosen as exactly chosen as the subject yeah. of, a, of, a, of an essay about about fiction writing. Fi- yeah, fiction yeah, writing on the right, because I think that yeah, I think that fiction writing on the right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's hugely influenced I... by Bronze Age mindset. 
I think he picked it just because it's a very successful yeah. right wing self published book. Mm. And uh, kind of like treated it like, well, that's like delicious tacos. That's, you know, yeah. but it's it's not, of course. Well, I think I mean, I think and... I think almost in a in a sense, what he's actually trying to say is, um, you know, the bronze sage pervert doesn't believe any of the things he's written. You know, you know, it's just fiction, right? You know, he's a character. And I and well, I don't think I, think, I don't yes. think that's true. Yeah. I don't think that's true at all. In fact, I know I know it's very far true. I know it's not true. <laughs> yeah yeah you yeah no i mean to, to even... be charitable to alex there i think like maybe what he was getting at was that in right-wing fiction because his beat is literature he's not yeah. a philosopher he's a fiction writer that um a lot of right-wing literature is essentially people in our sphere trying to write like Welbeck yeah. or trying to write like uh zero hp mm. And I think there is some credence to that. Like, you know, we both like positive and negative, like you should have your influences. Yeah. You like, you know, people who want to write the type of stories that Zero HP writes, kind of like, um, you know, philosophical sci-fi, yeah. the people who want to write the type of kind of, uh, um, you know, comedic, on way type stories that Welbeck writes, mm -hmm. like, yeah, have at it. And like, you should have your mentors, you should, you know, follow them. But like, the, that's not the only way to write fiction. <laughs> like there, there are other models, there are other, you know, people you could follow. And so to be charitable to Alex here, I would say that he uh, maybe is suggesting that there are, you know, that the, that the right wing fiction scene is nascent and you know, growing yeah. and that there are other, you know, styles and, you know, whatever that can be explored. I mean, one, and the, like, one of one of the things oh, I was just say, one of the things that I that I would dispute is whether or not there needs to be a kind of unified, um, a unified uh, group, you know, whether whether we need to have dissident right fiction as a group and you've got a group of people and they're all working towards the same you know the same kind of goal using the same kind of literary model so that it's actually a movement or, wh or whether actually yeah. all you've got is you've just got pe people on our side writing fiction writing and and, yeah. and it's and it's not so much a it's not really an identifiable movement i mean yes you can draw them together because you can say well you know the all these different people share the same kind of politics and they're all on twitter and you know blah 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 uh but 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 nevertheless that doesn't constitute a movement that's not you know that's not like a, a movement in the way that say uh romanticism is or was in yeah. was in you know late 18th century poetry or whatever um oh yeah no no that's that's long been my distinction that and i mentioned this on an earlier pod too that to the extent that we are a um I mean, to the extent that we want to produce good art, we should yeah. be a kind of um, uh, right-wing artists producing art yes. rather than artists yeah. producing right-wing art. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the, the, tel the teleological goal should not be ideological. Yeah. 
the the goal should just be to express yourself. And so what we need to do is we need to encourage people in our sphere who now are kind of like they see like the professional publishing world and they're like, well, they're never going to publish me. I'm not writing about, you know, mm. um, you know, gay Mexican grandmothers. And, um, you know, so I, I might as well give up. Yeah. And so I think the best thing we can do is encourage them to yeah. like self-publish, keep writing. Yeah. You self-publish, keep writing, and like do you know? I mean, because there are people yeah. who are reading. I mean, I'll I'll read yeah. it. I mean, I'll read what you're writing. Yeah, I mean, listen, like I've sold six plus thousand copies of my books on Amazon, right? I mean, I, nice. I'm a nice. I'm a I'm a, and that's not including the eggs Benedict option, um, uh, or or any of the, the the Antelope Hill stuff. You know, like I um. Yeah, I I came out of nowhere. I just I just started writing, and that's if if that's one thing that you take away from from sort of my example is you, you can do it. You know, you can just if you want to write, if you feel a vocation, then just do it. You know, don't don't think about whether or not you're going to get your work published by you know a literary journal or whether you're going to have your first short story collection or novel published by Penguin. Just get it get it out there get it out then and yeah and because you have because you have the tools you know it's 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 easy to publish a book on amazon i know it's i know maybe it's less than ideal to be you know to be giving a percentage of profits to jeff bezos but unfortunately you will be giving a percentage of profits to anybody whoever whoever you go with absolutely and and yeah. they will have a lot more money and a lot more power than you so there's no getting away from the fact that you are in bed with the enemy whether you like it or not so i i just think yes just just start publishing stuff just start just start writing you know i mean you can if you're if you're worried about writing under your own name or you know you're just experimenting then create a persona you know i, I created a persona and it's and it's worked very well for me i mean the persona the persona is me but it is nonetheless a persona and uh yeah, I mean, and it's freeing, right? Yeah. It's liberating. Yeah, but that's the like, but that's the thing that everybody that's the one of the great services that Bronze Age Pervert did, I think. And that's I don't oh, I yes, don't know that yeah. I would have I would have started down this path. Why well, no, I wouldn't have started down this path without him and without seeing what he had done himself and the success that he had had and the ability that he had had to influence people and events and. um yeah so it, it's actually it's actually a time of great promise i mean it's a time of it's a difficult time sure and it's more difficult than ever to get into traditional publishing i think it's more difficult than ever probably to to get a, a publishing contract with a big publishing house and sell lots of books i mean a, a vanishingly small number of people manage to do that and even people who even people who get contracts with penguin and people like that don't usually end up selling a lot of books so there's got to be we, we can create an alternative we are creating an alternative and it just i think it just needs more people to to have the courage to, yeah. to put their work out there and and that's one of the nice things about the magazine is that i can host not just people who Absolutely. not just people who are writing essays i mean that's great and i love that but the fiction i think is that the artistic stuff is it's fantastic and to 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 yes. speak again to the to the black pill essay then there's there's been a huge variety of fiction in man's world i uh, i would like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to pcm christ yeah. who's a friend he blurbed nutcranker detective wolfman yep. they're both in the most recent digest 
great guys and uh, great stories. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, a a lot of the best fiction is being written outside of the mainstream. And not only is it like, not like, oh, well, you know, it's a choice. And like, if you, you know, um, don't think it could survive in the mainstream, you should, you know, write, you know, and self-publish. Like, I I think actually, if you are a true artist, you you have to self-publish or you have to publish with Matt Forney. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, Those are your options because otherwise your, your story will be cut to shreds. Like (laughs) it'll be, you know, censored so much that it will no longer be what you intended it to be. And that's, and then it's like, what's the point? Well, why did you even write it if it's not what it's? And I, I will say, Nutcranker, Matt, like, he didn't change a single word. He, like, maybe made some grammatical corrections, but that's about it. Like, he, and this, uh, this was a very offensive novel. So <laughs> it, uh, yeah, no, I mean, kudos to Matt and kudos to, like, you know, everyone in our scene for, um, you know, writing. And, you know, saying what they really mean, because like a lot of the fiction that, you know, you pick up that's published by Simon and Schuster or Penguin has uh, like people don't realize this, but it's been through uh, it's been through legal. It's been through, uh, you know, sensitivity readers. Mm -hmm. This has been like a workshopped kind of like focused grouped novel that is like meant to convey a certain message and all the edges have been sanded down it's a a product it's a product of a bureaucratic structure that's what it is yes and and nothing nothing good comes out of bureaucracy nothing good comes out of bureaucracy i mean i i made the mistake i say made the mistake i i um decided to read uh, a book by Sally Rooney. I don't know if you're familiar with Sally Rooney. Oh, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. normal, <laughs> normal, normal people. Her book because it was dramatized in this country last year, or the no, in 2020 it was dramatized. So it was it was on during the pandemic, and since you know life ground to a halt, then I ended up I ended up watching the dramatization, and I I thought, well, I'll I'll read the. I mean, I, I obviously knew then what the book was about, but I I decided to read the book, and honestly, you know, it's. It's just it, it's amazing that that is a book that has sold millions of copies and is hugely successful. I'm like, this is the most boring, boring story, you know, about two about yeah. two about two young people who meet each other, have a kind of abortive sexual relationship and are just really unpleasant to each other. You're like, oh, great. I mean, great. <laughs> you know, this is this really is this really is no, normal people you know i mean why 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 is why has this been why has this been turned into a novel i mean it's just it's just you know like two yeah. ordinary not particularly interesting people being unpleasant to each other um uh and so so yeah i mean i i don't think that i don't think the literary establishment is capable really of producing anything that's um that's yeah. worth this that's worth reading you know or um taking any great uh amount of notice of yeah no i mean i think crucially like when you say they're being unpleasant to each other i bet it's not an interesting way no like no. it's yeah like i mean the problem with mainstream literature is it's cocked and yeah. so you know, you, you can't say anything that's outside of the Overton window. And that's really where most of the interesting stuff is. Yeah, for sure. So, like, I mean, you, you can have a novel about two people having a relationship. And frankly, maybe this is a lot of relationships these days. Maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not, uh, you know, a normie. I don't I say what I mean. 
But, uh, you know, maybe people do have relationships where they don't say what they mean and they, you know, kind of um, toe to ideological lines and try not to yeah. ever say something that's offensive. But like, that's not yeah. fun. No. That's not fun to read. Well, like, it's kind of like reading yeah. a hostage tape. Yeah. Well, I think, well, I mean, I think that, I think that probably one of the, I, I don't like to be prescriptive about literature uh particularly but i do think that one of the things that writers on the right have to do is they have to they have to show us not just how the world is but how it could be that that's one of the yeah. that's one of the things that i found very depressing about the about normal people was was just that it was just kind of glorifying the just how mundane and and how how sort of um inescapable that kind of messed up relationship is between people it's like there's no suggestion that there's any other way for young people to interact with each other there's no sort of sense of redemption or, or anything it's just you know like oh people are people are fucked up and then then they're not very nice to each other i mean okay maybe that's uh maybe that's a premise for a novel but it doesn't it doesn't offer any any hope i mean i i like to i return to um william faulkner's nobel prize address i don't know have you heard it or read it i have not actually no it's, uh, i mean I, i've read some faulkner but not this yeah address. it's great it's great so it's from i think it's 1953 was when he won when he won the nobel prize so he was in the process of writing his um his kind of jesus parable novel a fable and um uh which is which is a kind of strange blend of you know faulkner's very high modernism yeah. with with the biblical you know the biblical story of 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 jesus of jesus's life and sacrifice um interesting uh, but set but set during world war one set on the western front in world war one and the jesus the jesus yeah. figure is a soldier on the is a soldier on the western front who leads a uh who leads a mutiny basically against mm. there's a you know they're going to have a big offensive and then the, the offensive can't happen because there's a mutiny and um but anyway but he he was writing that at the time but um no the 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 nobel prize address then faulkner talks about the deficiencies of modern literature i mean it's, it you should look it up look it up later because it, oh he will he talks yeah, about the deficiencies definitely. of modern of modern literature and he talks about the fact that actually what writers write about today even then in the 50s had no meaning and didn't matter at all basically and he says that um uh writers need to return to the ancient verities the the old the old eternal truths and until they do this then they will write not of the heart but of the glands you know I, so he's just talking about uh, the the people the people in the characters in novels are fighting meaningless uh, battles and winning meaningless victories he, it's all this i mean it's it's, it's yeah. incredible it's wonderful wonderful rhetoric and it's actually rhetoric that he then uses in um a fable that that actually then features in the novel there's a speech by one of the characters a general uh, which actually actually is an expansion on the theme of the of the Nobel Prize speech, but it was just—it's just very striking, you know. That that um, you know that that kind of problem was diagnosed seventy years ago, and it's only re it's only really got worse, I think.
Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think I would settle for a novel of the glands. Yeah. At, uh, you know, at least that, that that would be honest. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with the work these days is, I mean, it's like it's literally censored. So, mm. you know, I yes. mean, the self-censorship has been inculcated within the writer. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, it's, it's sanded down on the edges like, oh, this character yeah. is too... Uh, you know, too much of a token this or token yeah. that and you need to so i mean it's just like well that's something that that's something that faulkner probably wouldn't have had to contend with in the 19 in the, in the 1950s so that's yes that's a new development that slightly slightly yes changes the um alters the problem somewhat <laughs> but it's definitely yeah but good for us yeah like we we have free reign. I mean, we're we're the only people who actually are free to write what we want to write. Yeah, and yeah. are like, I mean, it is rare to find someone who has a free mind these days who uh-huh. isn't, you know, kind of corrupted by the regime and can think for themselves. And to find an artist, because art is so progressive. I mean, to find an artist who actually is able to think for himself. Yeah. Well. That is an artist that is, you know, in some respects, right wing, yeah. or if not right wing, has embraced something that is against the prevailing yeah. progressive mm-hmm. ideology. Part, part and, of the faction of truth, as as our friend Bap would say. Um, exactly. Is absolutely yeah. part of this. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, so that, I was going to say, that's, on, yeah. that's um, something that's very striking about uh, Fender Villiers, you know. I mean, yes. When, when, when was the last time you saw a physical artist? who 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 was on the right who was producing who was producing material that is obviously producing sculpture of all things that is that isn't um that isn't a hideous hideous um <laughs> hideous instantiation of all of the of all of the worst values of leftism and here you've got somebody who's producing vital vital structures that absolutely you know grab you by the by the throat and yeah, that's that. It's just so refreshing. It's unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't. When I first came across him, I, and I can't actually remember how I came across him now, but I did. Um, I thought, my God, my God, you know, this is this is something different. And that's the that's the that's what we have now. We have the potential to make people say that, and no, nobody, yes. nobody, nobody in the mainstream, nobody on the left has the has the ability to make anybody who's truly honest actually say that. Oh, we've never seen. We've not seen this before. This is refreshing. This is, this is new. This this speaks to me in a way that all that other crap doesn't. You know, I mean, no, no Sally Rooney novel is going to do that. No, absolutely. I mean, they've created a system where it's they're constitutionally incapable of producing art. So as a result, you have artists coming to the right just so they have room to breathe and, yeah. and do art. So like at this reading last week, this Terror House press reading in New York. Uh, I, I doubt people in the like people in the room somewhere, I suppose, right wing or, or based or whatever. Yeah. But I think a lot of people were just, you know, young, attractive women and, and what yeah. have you are there just because that's, you know, where the yeah. artists are. Yeah. And like, that's where the real like art is happening. Yeah. And I mean, we're, I guess, in, we're not lucky in many respects. Uh, there's many reasons why men today are not uh, lucky, not the children that history smiles upon. But we do uh, have lay claim to um, art, and that's that's not nothing. That's something. Yeah, precisely, and that's and that's why I say uh, to go back to that Blackpill essay that maybe, maybe, 
actually what we need to do is we just need to produce art. If we can produce true, if we can produce art, I mean, really produce art, not, not, um, you know, we don't, we don't actually necessarily really need to worry about the ideology, you know, because there isn't any, there yeah. isn't any real yeah. art being <clears throat> produced. Not really. There's not really any honest art being produced or there's not much of it. So that's what we need to do. That's, um, and then, and then and then people can label it dissident right all they want but that wasn't the starting point that wasn't the aim the aim was just to produce good art because no one else is absolutely i very much had this thought and again i want to be careful what i say here but i, I very much had this thought um you know kind of after the after the midterms you know it's like kind of it kind of starts to feel like in the united states here like you know just demographically in terms of the numbers you know, statewide elections, you know, is there, is there really a, a political solution anymore? Um, but, you know, instead of getting depressed about that, I just thought about, you know, what it is that, that I do, what we do on this podcast, what a lot of people that I'm friends with online do. And it's like the art, you can put the art first and that has a huge, huge effect. I mean, if you can get, you know, and there, there is a political dimension to that as well. The art should be for art, but in as far as there is a political dimension, I think that's the most we can do politically because, you know, art changes culture. Politics is downstream of culture, as, you know, Andrew Breitbart always said. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a, I don't think it's a cope, but it's a, it's a way of sort of dealing with, you know, well, some of these more top, you know, these matters of day-to-day -day politics seem a little bit outside of our control. Uh, art is always, by definition, within our control. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a very a very very good point, uh, Matt. I think that's um, that's definitely food for thought. Um, and I and I certainly think that obsessing about the politics of art before before you actually get to the to the business of making art is pretty stupid, as far as I can see. You know, like mm -hmm. trying to trying to yeah, def definitely. trying to define a program for the dissident right to produce art, I think is. I mean, obviously, we can think about the kind of things that we want to do, and I and I'm I'm not I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but obsessing over getting the pre you know precisely the right um, program together, and you know it has to have these qualities to be dissident right, and yeah, I I, I think that's uh, right. I think no, that's it's... frustrating, but I think that there are a lot of people who want to do that because there are a lot of on the right as on the left, there are a lot of kind of pure theory cells who just you know. Right. It's it's very antithetical to what art is. Yeah. You know, art is the opposite yeah. of theory in so many ways. Like art can be informed by theory, theory can be informed by art, but the, it's like a left brain, right brain yeah. thing. You can't, you know, I'm not to sound like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, your average like high school art teacher or whatever with purple hair, but you know, art is messy. Art sure. It's a messy process. Yeah. And, you know, which may, I, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why sometimes it's not as associated with sort of more conservative right yeah, politics, yeah. because, you know, I, I think you, you could delve into that. That doesn't necessarily mean um, that the two things are, are mutually exclusive by any means. But, you mm -hmm. know, you have to almost kind of withhold that desire to impose order initially. Uh, obviously, later on, art can be very Apollonian, but the initial inspiration is, is yes. a messy process where you kind of just have to let the spirit take you. Yeah. No, and to uh, underscore the extent to which right-wing art, uh, the, the extent to which we want our art to be art first and, and politics second, I'm uh, struck by uh, recently a friend of ours, uh, J.L. Mackey, who is uh, a writer in his own right on our sphere, 
He said people should be reading the novels of my friends, uh, The Neighbor by Caleb Caudell, Automaton by T.R. Hudson, Nutcranker by Dan Baltic, <laughs> and House of Sleep by Brad Kelly. And these are all novels, like I, I think to some res- in some respects, we're all kind of in the same political place, more or less. But um, these are all novels that are very different and very different stylistically, yeah. very different, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, even thematically. So, um, yeah, I think there, you know, there is a, a good deal of diversity in uh, good diversity in uh, yeah. styles and, um, you know, methodology in, in writing, in fiction and in, in art, in our sphere. And that's as it should be. It, Absolutely. you know, it, it should not be, we should not all be, I mean, I love zero HP stories. Not everyone should be trying to write zero HP stories. Yeah. Uh, people should be writing, you know, the stories they are supposed to write, the stories yeah. that they feel comfortable writing. But and that's four, how we make good art. Those four books you said, I guess JL Mackey had said it. I mean, it's, again, I'm not even trying to drag this guy. I haven't read the Perez article, to be honest. So I, I can't even, like, I don't, I'm not trying to make a definitive pronouncement here, but I'm guessing, you know, he, he hasn't read any of those four or five novels you just mentioned because yeah. all of them, despite coming from this scene, um, they're not, none of them are Blackville novels and none of them really resemble Zero HP or, or Delicious Tacos or much less Bronze Age mindset very much. You know, that it's a great example of all of those books, I think are great examples of of people just writing you know, the novels they had within them, not yeah. putting politics first and, you know, putting them out there for very different products. And I think, you know, with, with some real literary half to them in, the, in every case. Absolutely. Not just saying that because I'm on the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, uh, on that note, I mean, I, I, maybe we pack it in here because that exhausts my kind of talking points for the interview. But I mean, I'm happy to stay on if you, uh, you have some additional points. Uh, right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. If there's, if there isn't anything else you want to talk about right now, then we can, we can defer the conversation to another date and, uh, and have some more fun. Absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah, it's, it's always uh, well, always a pleasure talking to you both. Always a pleasure. Likewise. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming on. We uh, we have a lot of fun with you. And uh, God, you, uh, you know, you are doing the work, as they say. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Ryan. Later, guys. See you soon. Later. Bye.